Hello, About South listeners. We are here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, with Professor Ben Fry, who not only is a professor at the university here, he is also my dear friend. And we have known each other almost 10 years. No, that can't be true. Eight years? It's been a long time. I was going to say almost 10, if not, yeah, it's maybe not quite 10. But you know what's weird about us is that we have lived, so I grew up in North Carolina, you grew up in Birmingham as an Alabama fan. Correct. I left North Carolina and went to Auburn. You left Birmingham and came to Chapel Hill. Yes. I grew up an NC State fan in North Carolina. Uh And then I went to grad school in Milwaukee, Mm -hmm. and then you went to grad school in Madison. (laughs) And then we did not meet until we both ended up back at Chapel Hill in the NEH seminar on the Native South. Correct. In 2011. 2011. So you and I followed each other around the country and never met. Until 2011. Weird overlaps. It is weird. Yeah. And it's okay that you're an Alabama fan. (laughs) But we should clarify that you are a citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. You are a Cherokee person. Your homelands are North Carolina area, Southern Appalachians. And so even though you grew up in Birmingham, this is through and through home to you. Correct. Yes. When people ask me if I'm from North Carolina, I say, well, only in the sense that my people have been living here for about 14,000 years. But, you know, just that. Just that. Yeah. Only 14,000. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, by, like, the beginning of time. Yeah, you know, since time immemorial. But, technically, I grew up in Birmingham. Right. <laughs> so... Which is like at the tail end of the Southern Appalachians. Nothing against Creek people and their clothes. To the <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but if we want to get into other ri- friendly, friendly rivalries. Um, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you know, we won some land from them in a ball game, right? Right, exactly. to talk to you today about Cherokee language revitalization, which I know is something that is so near and dear to your heart. Not only are you um, a trained linguist and a Cherokee language speaker and a German language speaker, but the issue of what Cherokee language revitalization means to, should mean to everyone, I know is something that you're incredibly passionate about. And so just to start, for our listeners who don't have much prior knowledge of the Cherokee language, can you just sort of explain its history as an indigenous language on this continent? Absolutely. So Cherokee is the only surviving member of the Southern Iroquoian family of languages. It's an Iroquoian language, and that means it's related to the Northern Iroquoian languages like Seneca, Cayuga, Mohawk, Onondaga, Oneida, Tuscarora, and I, I feel like I always forget some, but those are the, the basic portrait of the languages that it's related to. So a lot of them in the Great Lakes, a lot of them in uh, New York, 
uh, the Oneidas in uh, Wisconsin, of course, who can forget Lambeau Field and the Oneida presence there. But uh, Cherokee is pretty remarkably different from the rest of the Iroquoian languages. Linguists have said that it looks like the Iroquoian languages split into northern and southern branches some three to four thousand years ago. And so to give you a sense of temporal context, that's about the time depth, that's about double the time depth between Old English to now. Uh, so Beowulf to now. And uh, according to Charles Julian's dissertation on the history of Iroquoian, the similarity of um, core vocabulary between Cherokee and the Northern Iroquoian languages is somewhere between 19 and 24 percent. So if you look at core lexical items, things that you wouldn't have to borrow from another language like hand or stone or feather or something like that, like if you're a human being, probably you have words for these things. Um, that would be your core lexical vocabulary. And the similarity between Cherokee and the Northern Iroquoian languages is somewhere along the lines of 19 to 24 percent. So that's about the similarity between English and Russian. Right. So related, but not uh, English and Russian are not mutually intelligible. Exactly. Yeah. Pretty, pretty far stretch between English and Russian. They are related, but uh, you might be a little hard pressed to, to find that. Cherokee is a Southern Iroquoian language. It's the only Southern Iroquoian languages that, uh, Southern Iroquoian language that remains. And um, it's really interesting to me that it's still, uh, that, that it's located in the Appalachians uh, as opposed to further north like the Great Lakes. Can you give us um, sort of a sense of what is the current status of the language? And I imagine this may be for some of our listeners, certainly not all, but some of our listeners, this may be the first time they've even thought about indigenous languages on the continent. The sense of the number of speakers, who speaks Cherokee today, who should be speaking Cherokee today, where does the language stand in 2018? So I think most people don't realize the severity of the situation of endangerment of indigenous languages in general, and certainly of Cherokee, because Cherokee is uh, publicly known, right? We have a, we have a public face uh, as Cherokees, but I think a lot of people don't realize the severity of the endangerment, which, um, I, I mean, I can run down the numbers. I don't also know how many people know about the three federally recognized groups of Cherokee people. So to run over that quickly, you have the Cherokee Nation, uh, which is headed in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. That's the largest of the three federally recognized Cherokee governments. And they have about 300,000 citizens. And they have maybe 6,000 speakers of Cherokee left um, who are citizens of the Cherokee Nation. Uh, that's about 1% of the population. So uh, in the Cherokee Nation out in Oklahoma, their speakers are generally 65 and up. It's for the most part not being passed on in the home from parents to children. And because the speakers are aging and we're losing a lot of speakers uh, on a regular basis, it's, it's looking pretty severe there uh, in the Cherokee Nation. You also have the United Katua Band in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Um, they're pretty conservative uh, as far as their cultural traditions and stuff like that. And so they have a higher percentage of speakers. I'm not sure what the actual number is off the top of my head, but there are a lot of citizens of the UKB who are who are Cherokee speakers. Um, they're, but they're also not very large. So in the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, which I'm a citizen of here in North Carolina, 
we have about 17,000 citizens or so, and um, the last I was aware, our number of speakers was about 230. I believe that was the last listing that I saw. So we're hovering in the low 200s, which again is about 1% of the population, and our speakers are in the same situation. So on average, our speakers are 65 years and up, uh, the language is not being passed on in the home from parents to children. It's, for the most part, not spoken in public spaces. Um, it is written in public spaces. So we have street signs in Cherokee. We have storefronts that are in Cherokee. There's a lot of uh, the Cherokee syllabary you can see on public um, signage and also in pottery and art um, and things like that. But one concern I, I typically hear a lot as well uh, nobody can read it. So it's one of those things where, yes, the language is visually represented, but unless we preserve the sound of it in day-to-day -day conversation, uh, our elders are, are potentially going to take it with them when they pass on. Let me just show my bias. It's an incredible language. Yeah. All languages are incredible. Yes. But the Cherokee language just for the sake of this episode, we're going to wear our bias on our sleeve. It's an especially <laughs> incredible language. Well, I certainly think so. <laughs> it is. It's beautiful. It's syllabic. It has a great sound. I love how um, I'm touching my face right now and you can't see me, but it's it's very sinusy. Mm, yeah. Like in its sound, does that make sense? People like say it, it's nasal, and, and it is. It yeah, is. yeah, but I, it's not nasal in a, like a, sometimes we say that pejoratively. It has... It has a great sound. I feel like it's appropriate to be talking about Cherokee on the About South podcast because, to me, it feels so Southern. It, it really is Southern. When you hear a Cherokee speaker, there's something relatable about maybe that could be my grandma sitting on the porch passing down old traditional wisdom and things like but that. But not your Cherokee princess grandma. Not your Cherokee princess grandma, which is a whole other problematic ball of wax. But Right. Yeah. Your grandma, let's just be clear. No one's grandma was a Cherokee princess. Because there were no Cherokee princesses, yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, and actually, uh, and I hate to be a downer here, but one of the things that bring I've it down about that is uh, people would actually abduct Cherokee women and force them into sex work. Oh, my God. And they would sell them to people and call them Cherokee princesses. And uh, I've, I've heard that that's one of the ways that that term has been derived so if you say my grandmother was a Cherokee princess, it's possible that you heard that from your family because of one of those kind of stories. Wow. You know. Uh, I believe that. Yeah. That sounds consistent with other things that we know were happening. We know that that kind of thing was happening. We know about the continuing abuse of Native women, the marginalization, the hypersexualization, um, and the abductions that are also ongoing, murder and missing indigenous women are an incredible problem in this country. So uh, it's one of those things where people will sort of say this with pride and go, oh, my grandmother was a Cherokee princess. Well, she may have been Cherokee. Uh, and, you know, technically speaking, because we were the kind of society that we, we always have been, uh, there, there was no such thing as royalty. And if you hear that, it, it really should set off some kind of alarm bells.
of the things that we say and that I've heard my elders say about the language is that we say that everything in the universe has a particular vibrational frequency, right? Everything has a vibration. If you listen to uh, a translation of the vibrational frequency of the stars, you can hear the stars singing, right? There's this kind of magical uh, wonder to the universe that everything does have that. Everything vibrates. Everything effectively makes a sound. And what my elders have told me is that this was the sound that was given to us as Cherokee people. This is the sound with which we were supposed to vibrate, with which uh, we, we were given to go about in the world. And so um, th that goes along with the idea that this place is familiar with that. We have been walking around in this place for thousands of years. Uh, in our way of understanding the world, in our way of reckoning, we have been here since time immemorial. And so that also means that what the Creator gave us has been here since time immemorial. And we have a relationship with this place that's deep and profound. It even goes to the level of the, of the land and the land's recognition of us as a people and our recognition as a people of the land. And so when we think about the language and its relationship to place, uh, that's one of the things that I, I always consider. The Southern Appalachian Mountains in the surrounding area, they need to hear these sounds. They echo with these sounds, yeah. And so with that, with the importance of that and the gravity of this, what have been the contemporary efforts at keeping the language um, spoken? There are Cherokee language immersion schools both in North Carolina and in Oklahoma. In 2005, we began a Cherokee language immersion program in North Carolina, and the original goal was to have infants as young as six months old being exposed to the Cherokee language eight hours a day, five days a week. And the plan was that these infants would acquire the language as first language so that it would be transferred from, from elders to children again and that they would develop into fluent speakers themselves. So every year that these kids aged, um, they added a grade and it began as an early child care program and it developed into um, what's now known as Nukadua Academy. And uh, this is the language immersion school in North Carolina. And when I say language immersion school, I don't just mean that it's a school where they teach language. I mean that these kids go to school and they receive all of their school subjects from math to science to social studies to everything uh, in the Cherokee language. They do school in Cherokee. And so um, that for many years was enormously successful. And uh, the kids have, have become incredibly impressive in their abilities in the language in, in both North Carolina and in Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma's a little bit ahead of us in the time that they've developed this kind of thing. so. Um, we recently graduated our first group of sixth graders in North Carolina, and Oklahoma recently graduated their first class of high schoolers, which is super exciting. And I find myself thinking, oh, oh, please come study here. Right. Oh, please come study at an institution where if you If can... you were a high schooler, in Cherokee <laughs> Immersion School high schooler in Oklahoma, know that Professor Ben Fry is actively soliciting you to come to Chapel Hill. He will do anything. <laughs> There's an assumption that, well, once we create these fluent speakers as children, our job is done. We can just... Uh, you know, dust off our hands and we're good. They'll save the language all by themselves, right? That's, 
But what you find is that as the kids get older and they go out into the world, kids are very clever when it comes to taking social cues and they key in to what they're seeing around them. They're excellent at taking models and running with them. So what these kids do is for the most part, they go to school and they learn the language and they become masterful at it. And then they go out into the world and they go, well, nobody's using this. Nobody's speaking it. Yeah, you can go talk to grandma, but number one, how many opportunities do they get to do that? Number two, iPhones are cool, man. Skateboarding is cool. Music is cool. Kids, when they're 13, 10, 12, don't necessarily understand the value of talking to grandma for hours at a stretch. Maybe they do. Maybe some of them do. And I'm not going to say that there's not value in it, because of course there is. But that wasn't what I was doing when I was 12, you know. And so I think one of the stumbling blocks is how do we get the language to be used by everybody all the time? You know, how do we get the language, at least on our own land, at least within our own territory, how do we get the world to function in the language so that it's meaningful and useful and has social currency in our own lives on the day-to-day? Why, why can't I go to Burger King and speak Cherokee? Why can't I order, um, you know, an extra value combo in Cherokee and stuff like that on our own land? At um, the very least. At the very least, right? It would be great if it spread further. I mean, that would be beyond my wildest dreams, right? If I could go to Asheville and say, hey, Shikwahawiyagwadooli, <laughs> Um, or something like that. I want some pig meat. Um, but at the very least, can we do it in our own territory? So it immediately shows that sort of bias of Anglocentrism, which has entrenched itself in everybody's assumptions about the world and the way it works. And we just buy this. Like, we just decide, well, okay, yeah, I'll go along with that. No, that's not the way it is. It's not cool. And so as Cherokee people, it's it's really even a little bit frustrating to think, well, I guess we'll just go with English all the time. Why? It wasn't always that way. As recently as the 1950s, it wasn't that way. You know, um, people say, well, what are you going to do? English is everywhere. Of course it's everywhere. But I don't think you understand how recently that's been the case. You know, even in... 1955, John Gulick did a study at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill uh, as either a master's or a doctoral dissertation. I'm not sure which one, but he did a study of the Big Cove community in Cherokee, and fully half of the community in Big Cove at that time was using Cherokee in the home on a regular basis all the time. Half the community. Um, that's significant. And it wasn't, but, you know, a little over half a century ago. Right. If there is, I guess, optimistically speaking, it's not like this is so far gone, you can't turn it around. Not I've been all. speaking this language in this place for thousands of years. Only in the last 50 years have you lost a majority of speakers. Yeah. So you've got, you know, what... 13,950 years on your side. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. I think people 
people despair. People despair pretty easily, and they say, well, I can't learn the whole language. I just don't have time. I understand that it's pressing, and I really want to do it. And I think they get depressed. I think they get up, up in their feelings, as the kids are saying. Well, so... What should you say? Like, people do get depressed. It is overwhelming. It's overwhelming to learn a language. And I think particularly if you're a Cherokee person, it can bring up a lot of other negative feelings. Yeah. And so that's understandable. But where do you think people who want to learn the language, and I think this is maybe a two-part question, what do you think about people, Cherokee people who want to learn the language and reconnect with the language? How should that happen? What should they do? And then non-native people who are interested in the language or want to speak it what's their ethical approach into this because it can't just be you know oh i just want to take this for my own amusement i think so kind of two parts because i think we have multiple audiences that this question affects for sure so i think the key for anybody is motivation and I've listened to a lot of famous internet polyglots, right? Like Benny Lewis and Gabe Weiner and people who learn languages really well and really efficiently and that's kind of their thing. Um, and over and over you hear this trend about get into your why, get into your motivation for doing this. What impels you forward in this process? Where is the joy? Because I think in a lot of ways we will get depressed, especially as Cherokee people, when we think, oh, the language is dying, oh, it's a tragedy, oh, I have to do this or else blah, blah, blah. And to me, that puts the sense of obligation over the sense of empowerment and fun and happiness and joy that you can get out of this language. Because, I mean, our ancestors didn't speak this for thousands of years because they had to. I mean, this was given to us by the Creator. This was our unique gift to the world. This is the way that we encoded our knowledge, our jokes. I mean, if you ever listen to Cherokee people um, joking around over uh, a big buffet table or something like that, we are funny. I mean, you know, Cherokee humor is priceless. And I think that's one of the things that really kind of keeps me going a lot of times. I want to know what they said. I want to know what that latest pun is. You know, I want to know uh, what image that word would create if you did translated into Cherokee and how, how that would be taken because rhetoric and verbal acumen is so important in the Cherokee language. People just go off on, on tears on language. The way they play with it, they uh, express dynamism in the language. You can watch people just go in the language and and, and do sort of wonderful things and be laughing the whole time, you know. That's, for me, so my motivation is that joy. And I think if you're doing something and you're not centering joy, uh, it's entirely possible you're doing something wrong. So, number one, that would be it, would be the motivation. What life can you get out of this language? What pleasure can it bring you and stuff like that? And why not, right? I mean, you don't have to do it out of a sense of doom and gloom. Um... I think for our people that's incredibly important and I think for people who are n not Cherokee and non-native it's also important because what are you hoping to get out of this um, and you also have to realize that a lot of the joy is connected to the community and it's connected to the people and it's connected to the culture and the way of life and um, what you sort of have to realize is that you're coming into that community and if you're going to do good and you're out for the right purposes 
you're going to bolster that community. You're going to come in and help. You're going to bring something to the table. Um, you're going to want people to want you there. You know. So what do you what are you bringing? What are you bringing us if you're going to learn this language? Because yeah, it's a tremendous sense of joy in your life. But what else can you do? You know. Um, and I think another really important thing about language learning in general is habit. And I think that's one of the issues that a lot of people have. Habit and manageability. So, number one, you have to conceive of actually being able to accomplish a goal, right? So you can't say, well, I've got to learn the language. Learn the language is a nebulous task. That's terrifying. That's like saying, I've got to be on top of Everest tomorrow morning and it's five o'clock. What you gonna do? How are you gonna do that? You can't do that. Um, so it's easier to just despair and go, well, I'm gonna have another beer or something. Uh, you can't do it. So what you have to do is say, well, what if my goal instead of being on Everest was to be on top of this chair? <laughs> what if I'm gonna get on top of this stool, right? And so for the language, what that looks like is I'm going to use these five phrases in order to achieve this particular end in this particular place at this particular time. And one of the plans that I've been kicking around is they're in the cafe, right? I don't think they know this yet. So it's Kuala Java. Hey, surprise. <laughs> this was going to happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, if anyone uh, at Kuala Java is listening, listen up. I'm going to volunteer you right now, okay? No, uh, not to truly obligate anybody, but it would be cool, right? Like, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it would also, be cool. Also, Kuala, Kuala Kawi uh -huh. sounds really good. Yeah. Isn't Kawi's is coffee, right? Kawi. Kawi. Yeah. It sounds better than Kuala Java. Yeah. I'm just going to put it out there. Sure, sure. We don't even have a V sound in the language, so I'd improve it there already. And uh, so what you could do, and I don't, I don't know why I come back to the coffee shop as a model all the time. I guess maybe it's just from my German training or something like that. But it, it seems to be handy, so I'm going to go with it. Anyway, what you could do is you could say, well, I'm going to use this set of three to five pieces of Cherokee language. I'm going to learn these things that I can say. Then I'm going to go in at three o'clock on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whenever, and I'm going to say them, and I'm going to try to end up with a cup of coffee. That's all you have to do, right? Mission, say this thing, end up with this goal. Um, and what that does for you is it puts the language in context. And that cements things in your memory in a way. I think a lot of people try to translate. They try to say, okay, what does this mean in English? What does this mean in English? What does this mean in English? And if you keep going back to that, you're not really making the association between your brain and the concept that you're trying to achieve. You're making an association between the language and English and the concept. And that's really adding an extra step that you don't need. Quite frankly, you're never going to be able to talk that fast, right? You're never, never going to be able to translate as fast as you want to be able to communicate. And so... If you just do the language in context and put it in relationship, then you're going to get a whole lot better at the activity than if you were trying to translate everything you did. So, of course, you need somebody to cooperate with you. You need somebody that's going to be able to do the activity together. And then you need to do it on a regular basis because, of course, it's going to be difficult and you're going to laugh at yourself um, the first time you do it. But that's part of the fun, right? If you take this as an exercise, as a fun little game, as a challenge, and stuff like that. Let's maybe do it together with each other in cooperation. And we're going to be bad at it, and we're going to laugh at ourselves, and we're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. But if we do it every day for the next three weeks at the same time in the same place, 
then eventually this is going to be second nature and we're going to walk into the coffee shop and go shogu kahui aguduli or you know ayeli ale utan kahui ketaduli or something like that you're going to be able to do that with fluency and with confidence and then you're going to get the end met that you actually want to achieve on this a little bit but I'd like to hear you talk about what do you just love about the language what words do you love concepts when you look at the world and the great you know um, Mr. Ed Fields out of the Cherokee Nation oh, who does he's who, wonderful he's just a if you have ever taken a Cherokee language class online the total delight of it is just listening to Ed Fields talk about anything. But you know he has his little Cherokee glasses metaphor? Yeah. That you've got to put on your Cherokee glasses to look at the world. Right. Which is, I think, his way to describe that concept-to-brain connection, not right. you're translating through English. Right. But when you put on your Cherokee glasses and look at the world with the language, what do you see that you just love what brings you that joy oh my god so there's so much and i love that you brought up ed because he has this life and this light to him he's just such a delightful person to to watch um i haven't taken many classes with him online but the ones i have he's just really been a delight and i like that glasses metaphor too so um the one that comes immediately to mind i've been thinking about this a lot we can't discount the idea of trauma, right? Because as Native people, we've been through this idea of trauma, and I've been doing a lot of work on intergenerational trauma myself in therapy and stuff like that. But one way that the language has been medicine for me is in how it relates so directly to those issues of bodily safety, co-regulation between human beings, relationships, and things like that. And I'll give you a great example. Somebody just recently asked me, Tohizu. Tohizu is a totally run-of-the-mill expression. And in English, it usually gets translated as, how's it going? Right? But here's the thing. The word Tohi means peace. It means slowness. It means restfulness. And so when you ask somebody, Tohizu, what you're asking them is, are you peaceful? Are you at a state of slowness? Are you at rest? And I've just come to realize how powerful that really is because a lot of the time, I don't know if you have the experience, I'm sure many people do, of being around somebody who's just really wound up, who's really particularly anxious or who's really fidgety even who's angry or something like that. Human beings regulate their mental and physical states to what they're seeing around them. So when somebody's muscles are tight, when they're fidgeting around a lot, you can tell that they're nervous. They're visibly agitated. They're visibly, they're visibly aroused. And nothing wrong with that. It's just how they are. It's just their energy in the world. It's just the state that their mind and their bodies bring to the table. And I think a lot of us are unconscious that we do that, but we do regulate to each other. So when you're in conversation and in relationship with somebody, you're gonna enter into relationship with them. 
uh, you're going to unconsciously reach equilibrium with them. Their energy that they bring to the table will kind of combine with your state and the energy that you bring to the table in your body, in your comfort, in your mind, in your emotions, in your anxiety and stuff like that. And so when you have a meeting with somebody who's in that state, you're going to become to some degree in that state. And so when you come to somebody and you want to open a conversation with them and the first thing you say is Zoom, you're asking, how are you in your body? Are you peaceful? Are you at rest? Are you slow? Are you in balance? How are your muscles? Are you relaxed? Are you able to sink into the moment? Are you present? Are you able to be here in this moment together so that we can enter into a relationship together and begin this conversation? Because I want to know what your energy is like. Because uh, scholars have said, and this is super true, that the harmony ethos in Cherokee culture is a very important aspect of the culture. It's even been said that unless people are in harmony and on the same page, you can't even begin a conversation in Cherokee culture. How's it going? <clears throat> All right, see you later. <laughs> you know, that's real. And I think people underestimate the value of, of that question. You know, tall head zoom. It means, am I safe? Are you safe? How do you feel? And it's so much deeper a question than typical American English. How's it going? Good, how are you? We even ask that question in English in a rushed way. Yeah. It, like, by its... Not its denotation, but its connotation in English. It's a rushed question. It's yeah. never, are you at peace? Are you in yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you in your feelings? Yeah, are you up in your feelings? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you at rest and safe in this place? Yeah. It's become a rushed question. Yeah. And we, I, we don't really care. Right. But if we take a little bit of that ethos that... This is a legitimate question about how you're coming to the table. Yeah. It's a different worldview. And it's not even it's not even necessarily that I want to know because I care deeply about you, although that's part of it too. Because if we are in relationship as family, if we if we truly see each other as human beings, we will care about that. But it's even for me. I want to know this about you because I want to know what I'm stepping into. I don't want to have a conversation with a stressed out person if that's not where I am. Exactly. If I'm not ready for that. Right. If I'm not ready to take on that load of your uh, hyper arousal or agitation or something like that, then I don't have to walk into that. Yes. So, hey, let me know, you know. Right. And so that's one of those things that it's the simplest thing. It's one of the first things you learn in Cherokee uh, language lessons, right, to ask somebody that kind of question. And usually it gets translated as, Sup, bro? Or something like that, you know? Right. That's not what it means. So I think that's one of the things I really love about the language is that it gives you a sense of the culture and the values and what people really can do when they relate to one another through the lens of this language. That's beautiful. For you, for everyone, for everyone everywhere, why is this work important? So... I've done a lot of thinking about this, and this is kind of a chain of logic. So if you'll follow me, 
there is a lot of really disturbing stuff going on in the world. If I'm to be openly and overtly political, right? Go for it. Global warming, hurricanes, fires, earthquakes, deforestation, all of these things. And a lot of them are caused by a sort of tragedy of the commons effect. A sort of, well, my individual actions are fine. Anything I do is basically going to have no consequences and I can live however I want because I'm an individual. We're not in relationship to each other and to the world in the ways that we have been in the past. It's very easy to see the commodification of everything, of resources, of time, of people, of bodies. Uh, we talked earlier about the murder and abduction of Native women, and that's one of the primary huge concerns in, in the world today is, is, is this kind of behavior. And I think a lot of this behavior comes from the fact that we are no longer in relation with one another in the right way. We call that in the language do you da do you die the right way right and that encompasses a lot of things it encompasses uh, right thinking about the world right actions forthrightness respect for one another consideration care mindfulness all these these kinds of things that are valuable to Cherokee people and have been valuable for thousands of years and so I think a lot of the root of these problems is that we aren't relating to each other in the right way we are not practicing do you die we're not regarding each other as full beings, as products of the creator and of the creation. And because of that, we can do things like dehumanize people, commodify the environment, destroy things, have care only for ourselves and our own benefit. If we're not having care for the entire world, then we're not functioning as human beings we're truly meant to exist in the world from a Cherokee perspective, right? That was our conception. How can we live sustainably and equitably and in relationship in this place. And I think that's what the language encapsulates. I think the language gives us a tool to view how our ancestors knew that they were supposed to live in the world. And I think a lot of the problems that we face today, crime, homelessness, poverty, hunger, malnutrition, all of those things could be addressed with a lot of compassion and entering into true relationships with one another in ways that we haven't done in a long time. And indigenous cultures around the world, not just Cherokee, but indigenous cultures worldwide, lasted for as long as they did and are still around because they did something right the ones who are still here are still here because they figured out a good way to be here right so they're still here um, because they were able to find a way to live sustainably on this place I'm gonna say that's my interpretation all right not the only interpretation but could be so we found a way to do human being in Correctly, we found a way to live well as human beings, and that way is to live sustainably and in uh, equilibrium with the world and with each other 
We're not perfect, we're not claiming to be perfect, but we found a way that works, and it worked for thousands of years. And the knowledge of how to do that and to live in that way and to relate to each other and to the world in that way is encapsulated in our languages. So to have care for indigenous languages is to have care for the way that indigenous peoples have viewed the world. And I think the whole world would do well to take note of that. And I think the whole world could benefit from that. So if I were to say, well, how come you should care? Well, it might save the world. Thank you for listening this week. We'd like to thank Ben Fry for joining us for this conversation. You can learn more about Cherokee language revitalization on our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajoa Danso are my co-producers, and Lindsay Baker tackles our marketing. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and on our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com. Next week, we're talking to Zach Vernon, who's sharing portions of his award-winning essay, Boone Summer, Adventures of a Bad Environmentalist. We're looking forward to it, and de dada gohan you. How do you say up in your feelings in Cherokee? Not to put you on the spot. Uh, we can edit it out if you don't know. <laughs> I, uh, off the top of my head, I would say something like, do you, yo, unadantin, or something like that. Uh, just they feel really bad. You know? Yeah. That's how they feel. Um, so. I'd like to see you translate Drake's catalog into <laughs> <laughs> Cherokee. I'd like to see that too because it would add to the relevance, right? I mean, right. you'd be able to have media in Cherokee. That'd be amazing. I I think that you should, you know, everything you're doing now for tenure and your professorship is important. But if you could just stop and translate Drake's latest album into Cherokee sure. and perform it for us, I'd, I'd be really happy. Oh, in all that. my free time. Yeah. yeah. In, in all my copious free time. I, that's going to look great in your tenure binder. <laughs> <laughs> Having just made one, let me tell you what would really spice things up. I was going to say, you, how do you say you used to call me on my cell phone? Right. right. <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> Chat, money, penny. This shit got me in my fist. Gotta be real with it. Are you riding? Say you never ever leave from beside me Cause I want you and I need you And I'm down for you always KB